Hello again, we're just about ready to hit the track, so please make sure your safety belts are securely fastened, as they always should be in your vehicle. Test sequence is downloading, and we're clear for dispatch. Okay, let's move them ahead for test one. You'll be traveling in our ultra-comfortable LGS-250 body probe vehicle. Captain, there's something weird out there! A patrol ship! I thought so. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't leave these people here like this. And they rain. And rain. And rain. The deluge. Test sequence is downloading and we're clear for dispatch. Okay, let's move them ahead for test one. Hello and welcome to the WW Radio Show. I am your host and your friend, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 730. And together, as we have been since 2005, we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, Marvel, Star Wars, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook every Wednesday night, events, blog, and more. Please be sure to join the community, subscribe to the podcast, and find everything at www.radio.com. So this week, we're going to look at the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventure series, the Academy Award-winning films that were not only entertaining, but important. We're going to explore how and why Walt started making documentary films, including the why he needed to, and his personal attention to and concerns about the vanishing frontier. We'll also see how these films help influence the way that nature and conservation were and are portrayed in media. Then stay tuned for our Disney trivia question of the week where you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package, more updates, and your voicemails at the end of the show. And if you like what you hear, please share the show and tell a friend. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. With Earth Day having recently passed on April 22nd, and even starting to think about attractions that are coming into the Disney parks, for example, the Journey of Water inspired by Moana coming later this year, I started to think about Disney's relationship with the planet and its inhabitants, not just today in the parks and the conservation efforts and the educational programs, etc., but going all the way back to Walt. And we all know of Walt's love of animals and how that was not only directly reflected but impacted the creation of attractions like the Jungle Cruise, and I think by extension, places like Disney's Animal Kingdom. But Walt's love of animals actually extends much farther back and in a much more personal way. And in fact, it not only affected his extensive travels around the world and his desire to share those experiences, but also sharing stories of the creatures from the farthest corners of the globe with others. And Walt made 13 nature films in the 1950s known as the True Life Adventure Series, with eight of them winning Academy Awards. But how, when, and why did they come to be? Because more than just being entertaining, they were impactful. And someone who knows a lot about Walt and his people and his stories and the True Life Adventures is my next guest, and the author of The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. 
He is, he is Didier Geds. Uh, Didier, it is nice to finally, after 10 or 15 years of sort of knowing each other tangentially, to get to meet and chat with you tonight. It is an absolute pleasure to meet you, um, Luke. So I want to quickly go back in time. When I first started all of this, my Disney journey in 2003 or 2004, yours was one of the names very, very early on that I saw on they weren't even called blogs back then. I saw them on websites. I saw them in Usenet news groups. I saw them in discussion forums. Um, and we sort of knew each other without actually getting to, to know each other um, a little bit. And your name kept coming up in the context of books. And fast forward, you are a multi-award winning Disney historian who's published extensively on Disney animation and film history. So can you give us a little bit of the DDA origin stories and your background and how you started to first become not only interested in Disney history, but started to make it something that would become very clearly your passion? So I, Lou, I, I grew up in Paris and like all of the kids um, at that time in France and even today, uh, I grew up reading Le Journal de Mickey, the Mickey Mouse magazine. And that's really how I discovered Mickey Mouse. I mean, again, if you, uh, if you ask a kid in France, uh, where does Mickey Mouse come from? They'll tell you from a comic book. They, they won't tell you from uh, animated shorts. And, uh, and so I grew up um, like that. And I loved, uh, I loved Mickey. I loved uh, all of the Disney characters, frankly, in, in those comic books. And then obviously I discovered a bit later on the animated cartoons and the, and the classic features from, from Disney and, I fell in love with them. And then when I grew up, when I grew up, when I became a, a teenager, um, that's when I realized that there were artists who were doing all of this. And I thought, okay, wouldn't it be cool if I could um, meet some of those artists? And as luck would have it, uh, the Walt Disney Studio had decided to open a subsidiary in, in Paris uh, at the time. Uh, and so I thought, okay, then, then if they have a subsidiary, there must be artists there. And I wonder if I could interview some of them. Is that working better or do we stay? Yep. Okay. So um, I decided to contact the, the studio in, in Paris and um, I told them I'm writing an article for an American magazine called Animation Magazine. And that magazine had never heard of me before. Um, and I'm wondering if I could interview the heads of the studio, the, the Bridzy Brothers, uh, two French wonderful artists who uh, uh, then um, became the, the directors of the sequence, The Firebird in uh, Fantasia 2000. And they said, yeah, absolutely. We would love to have you here. We would love for you to interview the Pretty Brothers. And so I did. I interviewed them and I got the interview translated by a friend of mine who spoke much better English than I did. My English wasn't very good at the time. It took way too long for him to translate that, that interview. And so I decided never again. I improved my English uh, after that. And I sent the translation of the interview to Animation Magazine. And Animation Magazine came back and they said, you know, we're just looking for an article about the French um, subsidiary of Disney. So we would love to run your, your interview. And they did. And so that was my first published piece uh, uh, in any magazine. Um, and after that, I thought, okay, well, now that I've interviewed the Bridgie Brothers, let me see if I can interview more artists at the, at the Disney studio in Paris. And uh, I was very lucky because 
some of the major, major talent from Disney, like Andreas Deja, Glenn Keane, and so on, came to Paris to work for a while. Andreas Deja, for example, on Runaway Brain, Glenn Keane on Tarzan. And so I had a chance to interview them, sometimes for hours in a row. Um, and, and I got those interviews published in different magazines, again, in the US. Um, and so after that, I thought, you know, the, the, what, what I'm really interested in really is the, the history the, and, and the, the memories of the old timers, the one who worked for the studio in the late 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s. And I, I also know that a lot of those interviews have not been published in their entirety, interviews that have been conducted by historians like Michael Barrier and Jedi Kaufman and so on and so forth. I wonder if they would let me publish those interviews in their entirety so that they can be preserved for future generations of Disney historian and also selfishly because I would really love to read them. <laughs> and a lot of those historians said yes. And so I started the, the, the book series Waltz People. Uh, and there are now 27 volumes released to date. And I forgot one one step. I one forgot one chapter in the middle of the story, which is that uh, um, in the uh, the late uh, 1990s, uh, a friend of mine in Paris came to see me and said, "Didier, would you like to write um, a book about the making of Disneyland Paris?" And I was like, "Would I? Yes, yes, of <laughs> course I would. I would love to do that." And it took uh, it took us about two years to get the authorizations from Disney to uh, research the book and go and meet the Imagineers. And then uh, it took me um, about a year to uh, interview all of the Imagineers that I wanted to interview and write the text for the book. And then it took two more years for Disney to give us the authorization to release the book. So uh, uh, four years out of the total dealing with Disney, one year doing the really fun part. And But luckily, in 2002, uh, we released the Disneyland Paris from sketch to reality, the official art book on the creation of Disneyland Paris. And so that was the first uh, book that I that I published about Disney. And as you can see, this one was about the park. Um, and so uh, after that, um, while Walt's People was being released, uh, the daughter of Walt Disney asked me one question about a photograph of Walt Disney and a French artist called Louis Lumiere, one of the pioneers of the cinema. And I had no idea what that photo was, but I started researching it. And that, uh, that took me to a whole investigation about the trip that Walt Disney and his family had taken to Europe in 1935. And that, uh, that led to the publication of Disney's Grand Tour, uh, a book for which um, Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter, wrote the foreword just a few weeks, unfortunately, before she passed away uh, and, and financed, actually, the, the publication of, of that book. And then finally, to, to end that, that, that story, uh, let me mention that when I moved to the U.S. in 2012, uh, I started thinking uh, more specifically about one idea, which would be a series of art books about artists that always fascinated me, uh, who are the concept artists uh, of Disney, the people who who draw to inspire the, the other artists, uh, people like Mary Blair and Ferdinand Horvath and Albert Herter and so on and so forth. And I thought I would really, really want to 
uh, write a series of books fully illustrated with documents that have never been seen before uh, to really celebrate the life and the art of those artists. And so I pitched that project to Chronicle Books and Chronicle Books said, yes, we'll, uh, we'll do it. Uh, and so that led to the, uh, to the publication of They Drew As They Pleased, The Hidden Art of Disney, and to the discovery of hundreds of pieces of artwork that were uh, preserved by the families of those artists and that we had never seen before. And also documents like diaries and correspondence and so on and so forth that were that I basically rediscovered uh, and that, uh, that that served as the basis for the chapters in uh, in that in that series. One of the things that, that I think has always set you apart and has always um, always impressed me about you is one the 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 width and the breadth and the depth of the research that you do and understanding the importance of preserving and more importantly sharing the history of the individuals that sometimes are not necessarily the most commonly known. And even here, we were talking before we started recording about the, the True Life Adventure series. What Talk first about what inspired you to write this book and who was the book for and what do you, what do you hope that people learn and take away from it? Because we'll talk later on, it, these stories and these, these films are not necessarily ones that forget about everybody not knowing of, but, but certainly haven't, you know, most likely seen any or all of them. That's right. And so the, the first of the true life adventures was released in 1948. And, uh, when it was released in, in in cinemas, it really revolutionized the art of documentaries about animals. Really, the way that Ken Burns today is revolutionizing the the, uh, the art of documentaries about about history. Uh, it was really a big big deal, and 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 there's a reason why Walt won so many Academy Awards uh, for that for that series. The the issue, though, from a historical standpoint, is that. We knew very, very little about why uh, Walt decided to focus on that series and and the story uh, behind the origins of that of that series. Um, there was that that story that that Walt um, told uh, for to the Reader's Digest, or that uh, sorry, one of the cinematographers of uh, Seal Island told the Reader's Digest. Uh, Al Milad said, "Yeah, and the way the way it happened is that Walt came to see me in." Um, in uh, where I was based, um, and uh, he said, uh, "Al, are you interested in uh, in going to film um, Alaska for me?" And I said, "Yes." What do you want me to film? He said, "Well, um, most anything, like you know." And I said, "I don't know." And he said, "Well, send me footage." And I sent a lot of footage, and then uh, he said, "Well, focus on the seals," and that's what I did, and that was the origin of Seal Island. It's a wonderful story. It's it's a great, fun little story. Uh, none of it is true, uh, and so um, so I uh, and and I realized fairly quickly that none of it was really true. That it was a tall tale, uh, and so I started trying to understand what had really happened. And when I started digging into what had really happened, I realized, you know, all of this documentation that I would uh, accumulated from various um, outside collections and, and uh, outside archives and so on and so forth is starting to make sense. Uh, the other thing that, that, that was starting to make sense is when I was researching the book series that I was mentioning earlier for uh, Chronicle Books, uh, they drew as they pleased, 
Uh, I opened a lot of boxes of unproduced projects that are stored at the animation research library uh, at Disney. And, um, and in those boxes, I would find stuff which didn't make any sense to me, like those uh, storyboards for those clearly live action productions, um, some about the Colorado River, uh, some about bees, some about lots of different subjects, which were like, what is this? Some about Egypt. And I'm like, what on earth is this? What's the context? Uh, and then when I started researching that, that, that book, The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures, all of the pieces started falling in place. I was like, oh, of course, this is linked to what I'm reading in this in this treatment from that collection that I found in from that other source. And those are actually abandoned true life adventures that were considered in the uh, mid 40s and that were then dropped and but that inspired other things that then happened uh, within the studio and so piecing that together started giving me uh, the, the will to really dig even deeper and and to go even further and to really find what the origins actually were and so when you when you go back far enough what you realize is that really the root of all of this is a research trip um, during the making of Bambi in 1938, so 10 years earlier. Uh, talk about Walt having uh, a vision that, that takes him far in the future and, and also uh, um, evolving and, and learning one step at a time. And so in 1938, Walt realizes, you know, my artists need really uh, both, they need inspiration to draw the deer uh, for Bambi. Uh, and so I'm going to get some real deer um, at the studio. And we've all seen the photographs of the artist uh, drawing the deer at the studio. But he's like, but they also need inspiration to create the backgrounds for the movie. They, at, at the time, he was thinking about very realistic backgrounds for the forest. And he says, how can I get them to uh, really see what, what the forest should look like? And if for, um, those would be forests that are really far away from California. They would be in Maine. And at that time, he has an artist at the studio called Jack Day. And Jack Day uh, is, uh, is an artist that, who comes from Maine and who's also a great cinematographer. And so what Walt decides to do, he says, Jake, can you go to Maine and, and sh shoot pictures, shoot photographs of, uh, of nature in Maine, of forest in Maine, both during springtime and also during the winter, winter time? And Jake does that. And what I discovered during the research process, which made my eyes go wide and um, get really, really excited, is that Jake went there, uh, but he also asked a friend of his who wasn't working for Disney at the time to come with him. What was really, really exciting about that is that that friend of his kept a diary. Uh, and so uh, I located with the family of that friend of his uh, the diary of the trip to Maine to research Bambi. Uh, and uh, you have quite a few extracts from that diary, which are in the first chapter of the origins of Walt Disney's true life adventure. And uh, and so we, we, for the first time, really understand how the trip took place and what they saw and, and so on and so forth. And I also dug up some uh, photographs that had never been seen before from that trip. And that was really fun to build that chapter. Now... Okay, so research trip on Bambi. Um, the it's two people being sent to Maine by Walt and writing back to the studio to get instructions and and sending back photos and so on and so forth. And so that's already the mechanics uh, of of the way 
the uh, filming of the True Life Adventures would, would, would take place that is being put in place in 1938. And then comes the war, and then comes World War II. And then in World War II, Walt obviously has to uh, change the way his studio operates. Uh, he really cannot produce a lot of um, uh, entertainment uh, at that time. Yes, he carries on doing it a little bit, but most of the revenues from the studio come from production for the army, for the navy, and, and so on and so forth. And what that those those movies are, what those shorts are, uh, are really educational shorts, educational movies. And so he realizes that with his medium, he can uh, um, really be a great teacher. Um, and so he's like, okay, this is great. I'm doing that during the war. And uh, um, sometimes it's really fun, sometimes less fun. Uh, but it's teaching me a lot of things. It's teaching me how to teach. Um, and, and so he thinks, you know, when uh, we're in 1943, 1944, um, the United States and the world realized that the the war is 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 finally starting to um, move in the right direction for the Allies. And so, while he's starting to think about the future of the studio after the war, and he's like, "What can I do to reinvent myself?" And one of the ideas is to uh, uh, to use what he has learned during the war, uh, which is that he can be a great teacher. Um, and and start running with that and start really doing that. And so uh, the studio is start thinking about lots of educational shorts and educational series that they can produce and distribute on the non-theatrical circuits, meaning in schools, in churches, and so on and so forth. Um, and so they come up with a lot of ideas. I mean, Joe Grant and Dick Humor come up with an idea about the story of man, which is like an all-encompassing project that would deal with every single aspect of, of man, his body, um, his thoughts, his um, uh, creativity, his uh, um, um, the, the transportation, and so on and so forth. It goes into a million directions. And there are lots and lots of ideas like that that the studio develops at the time, including the the history of music uh, which then develops into what many many years later in the 50s is released that toot whistle plunk and boom um and so this is a very exciting time at the studio and uh, and from that at some point walt thinks you know there's something that's really interesting um there is this new frontier for the us which is alaska and people within the continental, the continental United States don't know much about Alaska. Um, most of them have never been there. I wonder if we can, we, if we could teach them quite a lot of things about that, that unknown region of the United States. Uh, and so he sends two, um, cinematographers, the Milots, uh, whom he doesn't meet in Alaska. He doesn't meet in the Pacific Northwest. He, uh, He's actually, uh, they're actually recommended to him uh, by a magazine in Alaska, by the Alaskan Sportsman. And uh, he gets in touch with them and uh, he says, would you be interested um, uh, in, in going to Alaska to film for a year uh, all that you can see there? And the Milots say, yeah, absolutely, we'll, we'll do that. And so they spend a full year in Alaska filming everything they see. Uh, including a month um, on an island where they film seals. Um, and, well, and, and, and so let me ask, and, yeah. and, and gosh, there's, like, there's so much I want to unpack and, and questions I, I have for you, but I'm going to stop for a second because even when he sent them here, 
he didn't necessarily know exactly what he was going to do with all this footage once he had it. Like he knew he wanted to do some sort of educational documentary, but he really wasn't sure exactly what he was going to do or how it was going to be released, correct? That is absolutely correct. Um, he has this vague idea that some film about Alaska would be, some documentary Alaska would be interesting. And then he starts getting the footage from the Milots who uh, spent one year in Alaska in 1946. And uh, uh, he gets that footage back, back all along 1946. And he watches that footage and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Basically. And there's no sound, right? It's just It's just video, no sound. That is absolutely correct. There is no script. There is no sound. Um, it's unorganized and so on and so forth. And it's like, I'm not sure what to do with this. And he's still not sure throughout 1947. And in fact, he's still not sure until May 1948. And in May 1948, after working and working and working with his artists, he's like, I know what I'm going to do now. Uh, we're going to take all of the footage that's um, that's focused on the seals and their predators and, and so on and so forth. And we're going to organize all of that footage that doesn't have any human presence, uh, any sign of man. We're organize that in a way that makes sense and that tells a story. Uh, and that's what he does. But it's, it's in May 1948. Uh, there are just a few months before the release of the first of the True Life Adventures. So it's very, very late in the process. And then the rest of the footage that the Milots have, have filmed, um, he decides to organize in a different way. Uh, and that becomes the first of the People and Places series, which is another parallel series to the Troll Life Adventures. Uh, and so he gets the most out of the footage that the Milots have filmed during that year in, in Alaska. And right. what a year it was, by the way. Yeah, so he's using it for True Life Adventures. He's using it for this anthology series and did was also some of it used for educational films like for for schools as well right well i'm cannot remember that but you'll have to read that in in the <laughs> in the book i have to admit uh but but the, the the biggest outcome really is the the first of the people and places series called the alaskan eskimo and the first of the true life adventures uh, seal island what I think is really interesting about this too, and the process and, and Walt's thought process, it made me think back to, you know, I, we sort of keep coming back to to Walt and this idea of making these documentary series, which was different than what he was doing at the studios, but it really also sort of touches Walt on a personal level because in the 20s, we all know the story, maybe we don't know the story about Walt being hired by a local dentist to do an educational short about like proper teeth cleaning and, and, and like oral hygiene, which may or sort of been Walt's first, you know, quote unquote documentary feature. And then when he goes and, and during, you know, wartime, he's also creating more of these um, educational informational documentary series. Like you said, he learned so much along the way in a medium that he had started working on in his, I guess it was like 22. So Walt was probably 20, 21, somewhere around there. That's absolutely right. And what was really fun uh, while researching uh, the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures is being able to write that chapter called The Great Teacher, which explores all of those uh, 
educational uh, projects from the war and right after the war and and giving a lot of details about those projects and the making of those projects that had never been shared before. Uh, really digging very, very deep within the Disney archives and other archives to uh, really uh, bring to the fore um, a lot of information, a lot of illustrations, a lot of documents that no one had, had seen before. And that was that was really fun because that was a a complete missing link uh, in the history of the of the studio, and so we we needed to to, to finally uh, rediscover that or discover that. And I wonder too if it it just happened to be this sort of perfect intersection of timing, right? So during the war, he's making a lot of these technological and and instructional films. You know, in in the forties, um, it it was a tough time for. The studios, right? Not all the films are necessarily performing super well. Um, mm-hmm. The animator strike is going on. So I wonder if True Life Adventures comes not just from a personal passion project for Walt, but also him realizing from a business perspective that we need to create something new to sort of keep the sort of keep the machine churning here. Um, you know, and not necessarily you know, release another, um, you know, mainstream feature film and having well, to d- there, diversify there is, a little bit. There, there is no doubt that after the strike, after the, the beginning of World War II, uh, Walt is trying to reinvent himself. And uh, uh, the first way he does it is um, in just trying to survive really during the the. World War II and producing those projects for for the government, uh, but then he knows that he needs to try new things even after the war because uh, it's still going to be tough times right after the war. And so it's the uh, the package features uh, like make my music and melody time and things like that. Uh, it is the true life adventures, which is another uh, avenue that he explores and that uh, he's trying. It is also uh, using the block phones from uh, from the United Kingdom to uh, uh, to produce live action movies like uh, Treasure Island, uh, and all of that is really him trying to uh, to diversify his revenue streams or the revenue streams of the studio and diversify his creative outputs. And, and just uh, making sure that he doesn't rely on just uh, um, feature films, uh, animated um, uh, movies. Uh, and um, and, and it's, it's a great idea. And then obviously uh, all of that leads a bit later to, uh, uh, to Disneyland, California, and, and to uh, another reinvention of what he does uh, through uh, theme parks. We use the word visionary when we talk about Walt, when we talk about the multiplane camera, when we talk about the marriage of live action and, and animation when we talk about the creation of a place like Disneyland, but he's also a visionary in realizing the, that he has this footage that may not necessarily have theatrical value, right? It might not be able to sort of stand on its own for a th- full theatrical release, but un- especially when he has, when there's no human beings in it, right? It literally is just animals with no sound, but can create a new type of documentary genre. I have to imagine Roy is panicking about the money that's being spent, knowing that these are not going to be released in, in theaters. But again, hindsight being 2020, we look at him as this brilliant visionary with being able to shift and pivot, not just in terms of 
generating revenue, but in terms of creating content that is going to be interesting, but delivered in a unique way. Absolutely, that that's absolutely right, and you're right. Roy freaked out completely, and uh, and and even uh, when he tries to get the the uh, the featurette uh, Seal Island distributed by RKO, RKO says no, absolutely not. This is not going to work. We can't do it, and he says, well, uh, okay, you can do it. Let me uh, let let me do it, and then he books the movie himself in uh, in a theater in Pasadena. The movie is super successful. Uh, it wins an Academy Award, and with the Academy Award, he's like, okay, now it has an Academy Award. Can you distribute it? And they say, yeah, okay, we'll 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 do it. I think, by the way, um, that if I remember well, that's what leads to the creation a few years later of uh, Buena Vista uh, distribution because Roy really got very frustrated by RKO. Uh, at that point and he's like okay they're really not flexible or creative or inventive so let's do it ourselves um uh, but uh, but but yes it was uh, it was a way to break the mold it was a way to uh, to say you know um i'm walt disney and i know what what the public wants and uh, and and also i mean what an amazing editor i mean uh, to to see all of that footage and and think okay i i finally know what's going to work uh, here and then having such a success with it it's really uh, i mean there's no doubt that he was a genius right because there's there's a hundred thousand feet of footage that's coming in and sort of rounding up to about a hundred thousand dollars in costs, it is edited down to this 27 minute, which is longer than a short, right? It's a sort of, it's a long documentary, but wins the best documentary Oscar that year. That's right. It's such a weird format and, but it's, it's a great success and wins the, the Academy Award. That's right. And I think it's interesting too, from the audience perspective, because the audience hadn't seen anything like that. Forget about coming from Disney. They hadn't seen like anything like that at all. And I I remember reading that Walt would get questions from people who were used to seeing him do, you know, animated features. You know, how do you train the animals? How did you train the animals to dance to the music like that? Because that is what was overlaid on the true life adventures. There There was narration and there was music. So people thought this was some sort of coordinated choreographed effort that Walt and his team was able to do because they had never seen anything like that before. And that's why when we use terms like visionary, they're incredibly appropriate. Yeah, I agreed with, with all of that. And, uh, and, and what, what uh, people who watched those um, uh, true life adventures did not realize is uh, the amount of efforts that the cinematographers themselves had to go through to, uh, uh, to capture all of that footage. I mean, that Island with the seals, that was an island that was not easy to get access to. Uh, it was incredibly difficult to get access to, in fact, and, and fairly dangerous uh, to, to go to. And then the Milots, I mean, you who, uh, who shot all of that footage during a year, you have to imagine that they were going to Alaska in 1946, where it was a very, very, very primitive environment. Uh, and, and on top of that, Elma Milot, uh, Al's wife, She's pregnant when she goes there. So, and and you have things. I mean, I rediscovered their diaries. I rediscovered their lost autobiography, who even which even the family didn't know existed. Um, and uh, and in there, you have uh, you have extracts like uh, Elma Milot after 
two months living with the uh, with the Eskimos uh, uh, in a remote village in the middle of winter. She finally goes back to one of the sort of big cities in in Alaska, and when she arrives there, she's like first bath in two months <laughs> and, and you're like oh my god this is just this is just incredible right their story i mean their own story of how this gets shot and made and the patience and the diligence and sort of the the very sort of didactic way it was done is incredibly dramatic right their sort of cinema their story their cinematographic i don't even know if that's a word their story of how this was was made is incredibly um and again, remembering it, this is this is the '40s is is a very sort of dramatic tale for the two of them as well. Without a doubt, and what was really fun for me was after I finally rediscovered the diaries, which were spread into and they, they were preserved by various museums in in Alaska uh, and one museum um, in in Oregon. Uh, and then when I tracked down their their autobiography. Um, I started piecing the whole trip together, like literally day by day, and I, I could not believe what I was reading. I mean, the conditions they had to endure, uh, the type of adventure they had, the uh, uh, really the, the, the meetings with death, which were really like very close mm -hmm. calls with death, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, this is really, uh, uh, if, if someone had written an adventure novel like this, I don't think a lot of people would have believed it, and and it's it's a it's it's a true life adventure in this case. Yeah, so, yes, and that's what I love too. What I love about the book, and again, it, it's beautiful. It, it's it's like a coffee table book. Is in addition to the research that you did, you share it through this correspondence that you rediscovered and and unearthed, and these diaries and storyboard art and unpublished photos that nobody really had ever seen before. So you tell the stories not just in words, but it, but visually, it's a, it's a very, very beautiful book to be able to just pick up and go through. You know, one of the things that I've wanted to, to do ever since I started writing those, those books about Disney history is I wanted myself as the author to completely disappear and to, uh, to let the people who lived the events of the time really speak for themselves. And so that means relying as much as possible on, on diaries, uh, on correspondence, uh, on interviews, and me as the author just selecting the best, uh, the best quotes and, and the best stories uh, from, from all of this and, and trying to, uh, to interfere as little as possible uh, in, in all this. Uh, and obviously, from an illustration standpoint, make sure that practically every single visual document that would be included in this book or in the, in the other books that I've been writing or that I'm writing now, that all of those visual illustrations uh, be things that have never been seen before. Um, because a lot of the people who will uh, read those books are people who have already read all of the other books about Disney. And I don't want to just recycle things that have already been published. I really want everything to be new and 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 people to, uh, at each page of the book, said, I didn't know that. I'd never seen this. This is really unbelievable. And, and that's the whole point. You feel like you are there during the process because of the story words, because the, the photos and the scans are so rich and they're so vibrant. Even some of the photos of Walt are ones that, that that I had never seen before. So it, it it's fascinating just to sort of pick it up almost and turn to any page and see some of these things that really sort of transport you back in time. 
but again, I, you know, I keep thinking about what this, what Seal Island, which Walt named, right? Walt, Walt chose the name Seal Island. What made the True Life Adventure series not just unique, but but such a differentiator from everything out that not just was was in theaters, but anything that was different that Disney was doing was it literally created a new genre and a new audience base and a new market for these nature type documentaries. Like they they created with Seal Island, they created the mold and the template for how documentaries about nature would be made going forward. And because it wasn't just a purely educational film, like everything else, it was edutainment. It was educational, but it was entertaining first. And there was music and there was humor and there's a wonderful storytelling element, right? That's what Disney is at at its core as a storytelling company. There's a storytelling element here about these animals that obviously don't speak, but their behavior. And, the, uh, you know, as with everything else, Disney, incredibly high production value to the work that was being put on film. That's absolutely right. I could not say it better. So Seal Island comes out in uh, 1948 and is, is met with success. Um, again, it's Disney sees that there is an audience and an interest in this, this starts to the snowball, as it were, rolling for what would be a series of true life adventure films that would run not just in the 40s and early 50s, but would run through, I I guess the last one was in the early 60s, mid 60s? Um, The last one, I believe, is actually in the the late 50s. I would I I think it was Jungle Cats. Jungle Cat came out in 1960, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in 1960. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, But yes, you're right. That's then followed by Beaver Valley, another another true life adventure that's filmed by the Milots. And then then there are more uh, cinematographers that come into the fold, like the the, the Chryslers and so on and so forth. And... This is actually the subject of uh, of, of the next volume uh, in in this uh, series about the true life adventures, which which actually is going to be a really fun one because um, it won't deal just with the true life adventures. What what happens in is in 1952, uh, when Walt has already released several of those true life adventures, he shares with the press uh, the following. ID, which is he has this series that he thinks about as um, adventures in nature, which are the true life adventures. Uh, but he's saying to the press, you know, I'm also going to launch another series. I'm just about to launch another series, which is going to be adventures in music and another series, which is adventures in history. Uh, and adventures in music obviously becomes uh, both Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom and Melody. Uh, but there were other uh, shorts planned in that in that same series, and the Adventures in History uh, series um, was to start with Ben and me, uh, and then carry on with o- other shorts. And so I I thought, okay, wouldn't it be fun to research those parallel series also? And so that second volume of the the True Life Adventure series uh, is gonna is gonna focus um, on. The, the, the next two uh, true life adventures, but also on this whole um, 
History of Music, Adventures in Music project, which is incredibly rich, incredibly beautiful, visually speaking, and uh, the historical slash folklore uh, projects that, that Disney was starting to consider in the early, in the mid forties. And then that, that evolved into that, uh, uh, that planned uh, series of adventures in history. So it's a, it's a really fun one. And did the true life adventure series, right, as long as we're talking about the, the Disney's um, was, was this sort of where Roy E Disney started getting some of his early production work was on the true life series. That's absolutely right. He worked both on um, some of the True Life Adventures, but especially on the True Life Fantasy, uh, Perry, the, the squirrel. Uh, and, and so did some work uh, on, on that one, uh, especially. Mm-hmm. And I know in the, I guess it was like the mid-70s, they, Disney's able to go back into their archives and they create the best of, they create a, a best of compilation documentary, um, including highlights from... 13 of the films that were produced from 48 to 60. So even, you know, decades later, the True Life Adventure series sort of was was given new life and introduced to a new audience. Of course. And uh, it goes further than that, because in the, um, I believe it's in the 1990s or early 2000 that uh, Disney launches Disney Nature, uh, which is uh, sort of an other reincarnation of the True Life Adventures for a modern audience. And, uh, you're certainly familiar with quite a few of the uh, uh, Disney Nature projects, which started in in, in France and then uh, uh, that was supported by the studio in the U.S. and that became uh, a major uh, undertaking for for Disney with some beautiful, beautiful documentaries about uh, uh, all sorts of animals and in a lot of different regions. Yeah, and I remember in in the mid two thousands, maybe two thousand five, six somewhere, they actually didn't they didn't they release was the entire set of True Life Adventures on DVD. Like it was a four disc or six disc DVD series that had all of, um, it was part of the Legacy Collection, I think. And they so they were able to reintroduce them again, not just, not for theatrical viewing, but for home viewing as well. That's absolutely right. That's a project that was developed by both uh, Roy E. Disney and Leonard Maltin. And uh, and yes, uh, it's all of them are on on DVDs, including uh, wonderful uh, bonus features on those DVDs. That's right. Now, interestingly, before we recorded, I was I went on to Disney Plus and I wanted to see how many of them were on there, uh, and I only I only saw four. I only saw maybe unless I had missed some. I saw the Living Desert, the Vanishing Prairie, African Lion, and Jungle Cat. I didn't see Seal Island, and I and you know, obviously. When Disney Plus launched, they didn't sort of just put everything they had into it. They're going to release them over time. And, and the hope is that we'll, we'll obviously have access to all of these on Disney Plus. So once, because I think, Diddy, I think they hold up over time, right? I think it doesn't matter what format film it was shot in. I think that the stories still hold up over time. There's absolutely no doubt. You can you can rewatch them today, and they uh, they work really really well. They're still very entertaining. They're still uh, very accurate in their portrayal of uh, of the animals and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, they're they're just uh, playing very good series. They uh, they they aren't that dated, frankly. Uh, they work really well. Mm-hmm. So, sort of to tie this this all up in a bow, how would you? 
knowing these series as as and, and these films and and so many of the people who who put them together, how do you think the True Life Adventure series has influenced the way that nature conservation, right? We talk about Disney's Animal Kingdom and Disney's conservation efforts. How much of an impact do you really think this True Life Adventure series had, not just on Disney, on film, Disney in the parks, but I think media as a whole portraying this idea and the importance of of showcasing nature and animals and and conservation and, and putting it out in the forefront? Well, you mentioned it yourself earlier, which is that uh, there, there are two ways to answer that. One is that really it inspired a lot of other uh, people who created documentaries to think differently about the way they made documentaries and to make them uh, more alive, more entertaining, more interesting. Um, and then uh, also it obviously inspired the, the Disney when he was uh, creating Disneyland. Uh, and uh, Adventureland is uh, is very much uh, inspired by the Troll Life Adventures. In fact, uh, uh, even the logo of the Troll Life Adventures is used, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, at the entrance of, um, of um, Ad- Adventureland in, in some ways. And so, um, so yeah, it, it has an impact uh, throughout uh, what's life, and it has an impact after what's life with those projects like Disney Nature that, that we mentioned earlier. And obviously, uh, today, it's sort of both ironic and, and a very nice way to close the circle that the National Geographic is now part of Disney uh, with everything that uh, that's that's linked to animals and uh, and and uh, articles about um, wildlife that 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 is in that magazine. Yeah. And I think one thing that they've shown and it continues to hold up is that, um, you know, facts and, and, and is, is as interesting as fiction. You know, these, these stories are as interesting as anything that can come up um, and be written as fiction. The book is called the origins of Walt Disney's true life adventures. Uh, it is by uh, Hyperion historical Alliance academic monograph series, this is the volume two of film. Uh, I will link in the show notes to where you can find this and the more than 30 books that DDA has published over on Amazon. DDA, you still continue, right? You still continue to blog. Is it, you still have the, is the it's, you still have DDA gets That's the Disney I'm trying to remember the Disney book. Disneybooks.blogspot.com, which is the Disney history blog. That's right. That's right. And you've been doing that like since blogging began. (laughs) Like it's it's still on Blogspot. Like you're still you literally have been doing this since the very beginning. Yes, I really have, Um, and I'm still (laughs) trying to share fun discoveries and and fun facts. Yes, it is. uh, It is fascinating, and and you have so many books to share, so many incredible stories. Uh, You are a remarkable researcher. More importantly, you're able to translate the 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 stories and the facts that you get into such you know, like Disney, like such wonderful, accessible fascinating stories uh, as well. It has been such a pleasure not only have a chance to get through the book, but after, you know, a decade and a half of sort of knowing you tangentially to uh, to meet and chat with you in person. And, and I appreciate you, your time, and I appreciate you sharing uh, all the work that you put into this and all of your other books. Has been an absolute pleasure for me, of course, Lou. I will, uh, like I said, I will share links to the books and your website over in the show notes. Uh, Didier Getz, thank you again so very much. You're very welcome. That was fun. 
It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details in which you see, hear, taste, maybe even remember. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you. Really, because as part of the WW Radio Nation, you help bring every episode of the show to life, every live broadcast from the parks, the contests and giveaways, they're all thanks to, by, for, with, and about you. And you can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar per month and get cool exclusive rewards every month, like scavenger hunts, group video calls, trivia quests, get access to our private Facebook group, their shirts, stickers, monthly care packages, early access and discounts to special events, and much more. I sincerely appreciate you and your love and support and help and friendship, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month. I want to thank some new and longtime members of the Nation family, including Kelly Zanoskis, Daniel Emery, Avi Erdfarb, Matthew Dominguez, and Rich Watts. I sincerely appreciate you, and if you want to find out how you can help the show and get rewards and benefit our Dream Team project, which in turn supports the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America, you can visit www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I took you over to Disney's All-Star Sports Resort and said that it's divided into five different areas, each with a different sports theme. All I asked you to tell me was, what are the five different sports represented? First, thanks to all of you who entered, got these, or most of these, correct, and knew that the answer was football, soccer, which, depending on where you are, may sound like the exact same thing, baseball, surfing, and tennis. And so I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were once again playing for a WW Radio mug, a pin, and a mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Kelsey Christian. So, Kelsey, congratulations. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. And if you played last week and didn't win, don't sweat it, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's easy Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, we'll go from the resorts back to the parks, specifically Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. And tell me, in Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, as long as we're talking about Walt this week, what is the name of the dog? Actually, let me clarify, be more specific. What is the current name of the dog in Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress? You have until Sunday, June 11th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to wdwradio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there. Again, you're going to play for a mug, a pin, and a mystery prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I know how valuable and precious your time is. I sincerely appreciate you spending and sharing some of it with me. Please don't forget to be part of the community and the conversation. Talk not just about this week's show, but anything in the Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars universe over in the WW Radio Clubhouse. It is fun, free, friendly, family-friendly at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I'm at Lou Mangiello on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you have a question or a comment you'd like me to play on the air, you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. And of course, as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. So check out our events page at www.radio.com slash events for our next Meet of the Month 
in Walt Disney World and other events, not just in Disney, but at sea and on land, adventures, expeditions, and more I'm going to be announcing soon. Please also visit the all-new LouMangelo.com to find out how I can help you turn what you love into what you do with one-on-one coaching, small group masterminds, or by attending my Momentum Weekend Workshop this fall in Walt Disney World. Three days, 50 entrepreneurs in an environment of learning, sharing, networking, and collaborating. We will learn not just practical and tactical strategies from people who have walked the walk, but you will do the work in the room so you can start making a real difference immediately. There's also our eight-person mastermind Monday where we can dig deeper and focus on you and your business, your challenges, opportunities, and more actionable strategies. Plus, you can take advantage of our early bird pricing, which ends in just a few weeks and save $100 on each of your mastermind and workshop tickets. To learn more and secure your seat, visit loumangelo.com slash momentum. There you can also find out how I might be able to come to speak to your conference, your event, your organization, or your school, and apply lessons from the Disney parks and Walt Disney on customer service and experience, leadership, teamwork, and exceeding expectations and creating your own Disney-like culture and experience in your organization and make some true customer experience magic. Again, you can find everything at loumangelo.com or use the contact form there if you have any questions. And wherever your travels may take you next, please go and visit mousefantravel.com for all your vacation planning needs that come at no cost to you, but with an exceptional level of personal service that is their hallmark. It's who I have used and recommended for more than 15 years because it's who I have trusted and who have exceeded my expectations for more than 15 years. Again, to get a free no obligation quote, you can visit mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, Please help spread the word. Forward a link to this or one of your favorite episodes to a friend. Share it on social. And if you can, rate and review over in Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And finally, I want to leave you a reminder and a request to choose the good Um, in this often very chaotic world. The importance of choosing the good cannot be overstated. Uh, Every decision we make, no matter how small, has the potential to shape our lives and more importantly, the lives of those around us. And by consciously and intentionally choosing the good, you become a beacon of positivity and hope and you can inspire others and foster positive change. We, you, have the power to make a difference, to inspire others and create this this ripple effect of kindness and compassion. So let's be the catalyst for positive change. One thought, one moment, one action, one reaction at a time choose the good. I love you. I appreciate you. If there's ever anything I can do to say thank you or help you, please reach out and let me know. So until Wednesday night's live show on Facebook, see you again on Thursday for the show from the archives. Have a great week. See ya. Hey, Lou, it's Patrice Roberti from Metro Boston. I meant to do this earlier this spring, but then I forgot because you were traveling. I figured you were busy enough. But I know that you're looking for best of uh, historical um, uh, episodes to play on Thursdays, and I hope that you will do number 498, Top Things We Love About Spaceship Earth, specifically because if there's anything funnier than Tim Foster defending the Phoenicians against your inexperienced Applicable onslaught against them. It is so funny. Both your onslaught and your defending your onslaught are so funny that I laugh every time, and I've heard it multiple times. So I hope you'll play it. It's also it sounded like it became a little bit of an in joke because I've heard the 
Phoenicians mentioned otherwise in later ones, and I never knew it came from myself, and now I know. What have you got against the Phoenicians? Take care. Happy Memorial Day. Bye.